The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. We are continuing our series. We're in John chapter 17 this week. We've been talking through the book of John about this idea of come and see. And today it's come and see what really matters to Jesus. The hour has come. It's the night before he dies. And this is his prayer to the Father in that night. When it comes to things that really matter, they shape us. They uh, make us passionate. We think hard about them. We have an opinion about them. There's been a thing that really matters the last couple of weeks people are talking about it and there's a lot of disagreement about it. You, uh, you might think I'm talking about Temple Belton football, but I'm not. Actually, talking about Texas OU football. Um, I, I prepared all week to make fun of myself when Texas lost, and I don't have to today. But Laura and I, we've got a, a really good friend that loves OU. Her name's Rachel. Uh, she's a college student, and there's a group of college students that, um, that meet in our home on Sunday nights. Rachel, are you out here? Are you here? This? Is she there? No. Yeah, oh, there you are. Great. Rachel, would you wave to everybody? Would you do that? Yeah, there's Rachel. Laura and I love Rachel. She's got a great personality. She went and served in North Africa this summer. She's looking at doing long-term work in other places. There's just one problem. She loves Oklahoma. Not the state, the university, actually. And she wears this ugly crimson and cream hoodie into our house all the time. And last week, I asked her if I could tell this, last week Rachel and I are talking a little bit of trash about the game that's coming up, and she says, well, OU's going to win because it's in Oklahoma this year. I just went, oh. I just said, you can win by 50, but, but never talk to me about this game again. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, it's never in Oklahoma. It's in Dallas. And so she said, well, on the ESPN app, it says Oklahoma's home. So that just means they're wearing those ugly crimson jerseys and we get to wear white, which is what good guys wear, right? And so she goes, oh, that's right, it's at AT AT&T Stadium. (laughs) We think we're discipling these students. It's in the Cotton Bowl every year. The game doesn't really matter to you. She goes, okay, right, but I think we're going to win. So today, though, we're talking about what really matters to Jesus, and we're going to ask the question, do these things really matter to us? We would say they do, but are we just kind of wearing our Jesus t-shirt, but we really don't even know where the game's being played or what it's about. So we're going to look in John 17, we're going to read the first few verses together, and then we'll just kind of walk through the chapter a bit as, as much as we can in the next few minutes. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give him eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. God, we 
long to give you glory. We know that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we long, as those who are in Christ, to give you glory. We long to make much of you. We long for your fame to be known in our city and in the world. And so God, I I pray that as we look at these things that really matter to Jesus, that they would matter to us and that our lives would in fact give you glory, make your name known, honor you, worship you. And Lord, as we do that, I pray that our joy would be fulfilled. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So what really matters to Jesus, we're just going to look through the verses and talk about some things that really matter to Jesus in John 17. The first thing is this, is that the glory of God really matters to Jesus. The glory of God really, it matters to him. He's about to die I'm thinking, if I'm, if I'm going to die the next day, what am I praying? God, would you give me just one more day with my wife and kids? God, is there someone I need to forgive? Is there someone I need to ask forgiveness? He's praying for the Father's glory to be known. That's first and foremost on his mind. So verses 2 through 5, you've given him, the Son of Man, all flesh, or authority over all flesh, to so give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I glorified you on earth. I've accomplished this work. Now glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had before the world existed. See, Jesus wants the Father's glory to be known. So he says it over and over. He prays over and over. I've glorified you. I've accomplished this work. Well, how's that going to happen? It's going to happen through Jesus being poured out his life in exchange for our sin. He's going to take the wrath of God so we can experience the love of God. And he is going to be raised to life, conquering death. Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world existed. And his resurrection is going to prove that. God's going to answer that prayer. The glory of God really matters to Jesus. Really matters to Jesus. What does it mean for us to give God glory? What does it look like for us to honor God as the greatest, the most wonderful, the most beautiful, who has satisfied not only our sin debt, but the deepest longings and desires of our hearts? One of my favorite authors about 20 years ago wrote a book, and in it he wrote about this, and he asked this question. He said, how would you glorify a mountain stream? You've got a beautiful mountain stream, and you want to give glory to that mountain stream. What are you going to do? Are you going to buy 20 gallons of water, put them in a backpack, climb to the top of the mountain stream, and pour in the water to that mountain stream to purify the mountain stream and go, I hope this really gives you glory, this new pure water. Look at what I've done to give you glory. That's A. Or B, would it give glory to the mountain stream for you to walk and have this great thirst and see this mountain stream and just to drink deeply? And as you drink, be overwhelmed at the satisfying taste And how it covers your thirst so much so that you want to keep going back to that stream and back to that stream and back to that stream. And you're telling everybody, man, this stream satisfies my thirst more than anything else in the world. Is it A 
I'm going to add some things that this stream needs? Or is it B, I'm going to drink and be satisfied? If you said B, you're correct. See, the way we give glory to God is by a world that's running after all kinds of things, seeing that those things aren't what satisfy our hearts. They don't satisfy our longings. They don't satisfy our deepest need because Jesus already has through his death and resurrection. See, the glory of God matters to Jesus. And so if we're his, his name being known, his fame being spread has to matter to us. The glory of God matters to Jesus. Then also the church, his church really matters to Jesus. His church really matters to Jesus. He starts praying for his disciples, these who God has given him out of the world. And he prays through about 14 verses and you would think that he's just praying for them. And then he says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's praying for the church, for this multi-generational group of disciples that will believe in him. Well, what does he pray When he says, I've manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. They know everything that you've given me is from you. He says, I've received them. They've come to know the truth. Verse 9, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those who you gave me out of the world. They're yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. He prays that our joy would be fulfilled, that we'd be sanctified in the truth. We could go line by line and spend an hour on everyone. But here's what we're going to do. Just kind of two categories of how Jesus prays. He prays about who the disciples were and then what he asked for them. Who they were. He says that they're given to him by the Father. That God chose these people, loved these people, gave them to Christ. He's given them the words the Father gave him. So they have the Word of God. They understand the Word of God. There's this mission that they're on that they've received. They've come to know and believe that Jesus is sent by the Father. They've come to know and and believe this most important of truths. And they've all been kept by the word, except, of course, for that one, Judas Iscariot, the son of perdition, Jesus says, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. He hasn't lost any that the Father gave him. That's what he says about who they were. And then what does he ask for them? What does Jesus pray for them and for us, those who would believe because of the words they would speak? He prays that they would share the same unity he shares with the Father, that the church would share the same unity he shares with the Father. He prays that their joy might be fulfilled in him. He says he's not asking that they be taken out of the world. So Mark read us this passage And he talked about how the kingdom of God has come through Christ, but then there's this not yet. There's this already, we're in Christ, he's making all things new, but the world's still broken. So there's a not yet. So we're not out of the world, but while we're in the world, he prays that we'd be kept from evil. That we'd be kept from evil, that we would look different, our lives would look different. He prays that we would be sanctified in the truth, and then he kind of repeats himself and prays again over and over and over, make them one. Make them one. So he's praying for his people, the church. And we're going to talk about some things he prays for the church now. See, the glory of God really matters to Jesus. The church really matters to Jesus. And so 
his church, his people being a people of truth. The truth really matters to Jesus. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We've already talked about two of the big battles that went on this week in Temple and Belton and and OU in Texas. We might as well talk about that third battle that's gone on as our nation has discussed Supreme Court nominations. I'm going to talk about it, but I hope to talk about it in a way that we can all hear and learn and be instructed by truth. Here's one of the things, a buddy of mine said this last week, and I I talked a little bit about this at a church in Austin last week, then Sean McDowell actually wrote an article on it this week, and it's this reality. The concept of relative truth is crumbling under the weight of our desire, our desire for 100% absolute truth. One of the things we need to learn, I think a Christian, a gospel proposition for this week is that the concept of relative truth is crumbling under the weight of our desire for 100% absolute truth. Well, what does that mean? It means you have people on both sides who are saying they want the truth. So what does this look like? You have people on the left, they're saying this woman was abused. That's 100% true and justice should come. And let me just say, if you have ever been abused, I can't imagine what that's like, the horror that you must feel. Uh, Laura and I were talking about this this week, and she said, what in the world will we do if something happened to Maddie while she's at the University of Arkansas? And I said, well, you could call the Fayetteville police and tell them they have seven hours to get the guy before I do. I can't imagine what that's like. And everybody, so they want 100% true. Here's what's true. This, This man is not worthy of this. And then On the right side, you got people saying, this man's been falsely accused. It's 100% true. It's absolutely true. This man's been falsely accused. I've got four sons. Can't imagine them being falsely accused of a crime. They didn't commit. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a family member of this woman and this man in the last week? To have these people you love being spoken evil of all over the world. I know none of us participated in all this social media stuff. None of All of us know that cable news on the left and the right, their job is to sell us to advertisers and make money. We don't buy in, like we're not hooked in by that. I know we don't wrestle with that, but here's what we do know. When the truth comes out, if the truth comes out, healing can occur for the offended party, right? And if the truth comes out, then justice and righteousness can reign. And because we're Christians, if the truth comes out, forgiveness and reconciliation can take place. See, what we've learned this week, we haven't learned what the truth is. We've learned that we as Americans are still pretty good at living in echo chambers and fighting with people we disagree with. But we've also learned that we yearn to know the truth. Relative truth crumbles in on itself. And so Jesus, when he's praying for these people, he says, sanctify them in the truth. And he says, your word is truth. This Christian story, the Holy Scripture, is a foundation for truth like nothing else in the world. And it's been attacked and maligned over and over and over throughout the generations and throughout the centuries. And its competitors and false teachings come against this word like a hammer just over and over and over. But the scripture's like an anvil and the hammer comes and hits and hits and hits and the anvil doesn't break. But the hammer eventually, it'll wear out. The handle will break or the hammer will shatter, but the anvil doesn't. 
This is the foundation of truth. So Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. He doesn't say sanctify them in social media or sanctify them in cable news. So if we're gonna be a people who are made more like Christ, it might be a good idea to get our moorings from this word rather than you, you pick the cable news du jour or social media or whatever else. See, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The truth really matters to Jesus. See, the glory of God matters to Jesus. The church matters to Jesus. The truth matters to Jesus. And then within the truth, love and unity in the church really matter to Jesus. This is why I think this is so important. Love and unity in the church really mattered to Jesus. Stated another way, multi-generational relational discipleship really mattered to Jesus. What does that mean? That means the Father sent Jesus to make disciples. Jesus is sending the disciples to make disciples who will make disciples. 2 Timothy 2.2 says it this way, the things that you've heard and learned and seen in me, these pass on to faithful people who will then pass them on to others. And when this is happening in the context of relational discipleship, people who love each other across generational lines, it's just such a beautiful thing. It's such a beautiful thing. So I'm, I'm just thinking in the wake of Sean McDowell being here, talking about how the church is the church and, and what do we do to reach Generation Y and Generation Z. And I just thought it's such a unique thing in America. There's never been a time in the life of a culture where one generation thought the generation coming after it was basically worthless. That was a joke, okay? There's never been a time in the history of the world where young adults thought 50-year-olds didn't get it right and they're really clueless. That's never happened in any culture ever. This is a brand new thing we've got to deal with. When I think about the church of God, I think about what it, what it would look like. like I'm, I'm pushing, I'm close to 50, not really close, I don't think, but closer than I used to be, right? And if somebody says to me, what do you think about these young adults today? I would say they're, I mean, they're incredible. They're amazing. Let me tell you about the young adults that I know. I know five people right now between 20 and 23 who are willing to go and live, learn new language in the Muslim world, share Christ with people who've never heard the name Jesus. They're willing to give their very life for the gospel if necessary. Those are amazing people. I am really excited about them and about the future of the church. I wonder what it would look like if, if folks in an older generation start hearing people talking about younger believers and they could say, let me just tell you about the people in my church. These young adults are some of the most amazing people I've ever met. I see them, I see them raising their kids in Christ and they're working so hard as parents to love their kids well. And I wonder if young adults begin to hear about these awful old fogies and just how cantankerous they are. And they said, let me just tell you about the 60 and 70 year olds in my church. Like they're helping us to learn what it looks like to follow Jesus. They're helping us to, to learn what it looks like to raise our kids in Christ. They're helping us to learn what it looks like. I mean, there are people I'm looking at that I wanna run ahead. And I gotta tell you, when I'm in this room, I can see people older than me. I can see your faces and I know who you are in Christ. And yeah, I want my life to look like yours when I'm your age. And I can look back and I can see young people. I'm in your life. You're in my life. We know each other. And I think, man, I wish I'd been like them when I was 20 or 25 or 30. They're just amazing. And then 
here's the reality. Culture has more fractures than a drunk mountain biker, right? The church should not. It just shouldn't. Multi-generational relational discipleship really, really matters to Jesus. Dave Tate, one of our other pastors, sent me this quote this week that I love. The call to unity is the summons to show in relational practice what is already true in spiritual reality. We are brothers and sisters and we love one another. This really matters to Jesus. How do we know it? Because his prayer, if you pray it out loud, you read this out loud, it takes three minutes and 30 seconds. It's not long, but there's some things he says over and over. And his prayer for unity, for us to be one, is, is one of those things. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. Why? That they may be one, even as we are one. That's verse 11. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but those who will believe in me through their word. Verse 21, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you've given me, I've given to them. Why? That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, they in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. I made it known to them, your name, and I'll continue to make it known. Why? That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So one of two things is happening here. Jesus either has really, really bad short-term memory, or he really wants us to get this. And in my, my family, because we've got five kids, we just kind of had Pixar movies on repeat for the last 18 years. So what, what I would say is either Jesus is just having a Dory moment, right? Where he just forgets what he said and says it over and forgets what he said and says it over. Or this really, really matters to him. Now being the son of God, unfallen and perfect in every way, I don't think he's having a Dory moment, right? Seems like this really matters to him. And And so for him, because he didn't just say it here, he says it in John 13, Paul says it in Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, Galatians 2. The clearest mark of Jesus' followers in a shattered world is that we are together. We cross tribal lines, racial lines, class lines, national lines, and even political lines to love these three categories of people that Jesus calls us to love, brother, neighbor, and enemy. Really easy categories there, love, right? So we love people, but we got to be clear. We're, we're not talking about just kind of some sloppy agape where there's never any chance to speak and dialogue and disagree in love with one another. We're a Bible church, right? TBC, Bible's our middle name. The Bible matters to us. We're not sanctified in falsehood. We're sanctified in truth. So doctrine really matters to us. Here's a reality for a Bible church for whom doctrine really matters. If we're to be a people to whom doctrine matters, then we must be a people to whom unity matters as well. Otherwise, our doctrine isn't very sound. Because whether you go to the Psalms and hear how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together, whether you go to Jesus' prayer here in John 17 or Paul in Ephesians 2, there's a lot of truth that says if we're going to be Christ, then we've got to love one another. And we've got to love one another because the world, knowing he was sent by the Father to accomplish something, 
really mattered to Jesus. And he said the way they would know that is if we loved one another. It really mattered to him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know eternal life, but it's offered freely to you. But Jesus said, I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, that they may know Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It was important to him that people know he was sent by the Father, that he accomplished this work. And again, in verse 21, maybe he's having another Dory moment, that they may be one just as you are one Father, as you're in me and I in you, they would be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. I and them and you and me, they may become one, perfectly one. Why? So the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. And I love this because this actually ties back to our first point that the glory of God really matters to Jesus. Because see, when the world knows he's sent by the Father, but he died and rose from the dead, it gives him glory when people trust in him and put their hope in him. So we're to love one another to love one another so the world would know that Jesus is sent by the Father. That is a testimony in a broken world. Because Jesus died to save a people from self and he rose from the dead to give life to those who believe, to reconcile us to God and each other. So here's the question. Does what, matter, does what matters to Jesus really matter to us? Does what matters to Jesus really matter to us? Are we just kind of t-shirt fans? Or we'll say it matters, but it doesn't really matter. So let me give you an example of what this might look like. You know, what matters to me, or what matters to Jesus matters to me a whole lot. Like, I hate Democrats, right? What matters to me, what matters to Jesus matters to me a whole lot, but I, I mean, I hate Republicans, Right? Poll in 2016 was asked, Democrats and Republicans, how would you describe your feelings toward people of the other party? 49% of Republicans, 47% of Democrats. Hate was the word that they used. What matters to Jesus matters to me, but I hate white people. I hate African Americans. I hate Hispanics. I hate immigrants. So yeah, I hate people who hate immigrants. What matters to me, Jesus matters to me. I hate blue cars. I hate White cars, I hate people who live in big houses, I hate people who live in small houses, I hate the rich, I hate the poor. But what matters to Jesus really matters to me. See, what matters to Jesus really matters to me, but I'm not sure that we can really put, put our trust in the words in this book. I'm not really sure that it needs to have authority in my life. What matters to Jesus really matters to me, but I'm going to live however I want. Jesus will be my Savior, but I'll be my Lord. How about that? See, what matters to Jesus matters to me, but I really don't like Muslims and Hindus, and I don't understand why we're going over there. What matters to Jesus matters to me, and I want you to hear me as I say this. I'm not, I'm not saying this to you. I'm saying this to us. Like, my preparation for this message was miserable as I walked through the things that I say matter to me that by my life just might not but here's good news in this. This is not a message to beat us up. It's not a message that surprises Jesus. He knew this would be difficult. That's why he's praying this the night before he dies. If it would be the most natural thing in the world for us to love people we disagree with, Jesus wouldn't have had to ask the Father for that. 
But the night before he dies, that's what he's praying for. God, all these people who are in Christ, all these people who are naming my name, would you make them one like we're one? That's going to take a miracle, Father, but would you do that? Because that's such a miracle in a fractured world. Man, people will know you sent me. If there's this people across racial, generational, tribal, class lines who are loving one another, serving one another, then the world will know that you sent me. God, would you sanctify them in the truth? He knew it would be difficult. It would take a miracle. If we could do it naturally, he wouldn't have needed to ask the Father, but he did ask the Father, and it's really, really good news. It's good news throughout this narrative. There's this reality of knowing Christ, this eternal life. It transforms us. It changes us in people who glorify God, who love one another, who love the truth. We're unified. And as you think about the, the story of Scripture and how it's written, this moment where Jesus is about to die, he's in this garden, is so beautiful because the Scripture begins in a garden, right? And it doesn't go so well. And something awful happens, and God's there in the garden looking for the man and the woman, the first Adam, and Adam hides, and he doesn't want to talk to God. But this night is different. See, Jesus, he's there in a garden and something awful is about to happen. And he's not hiding from the Father. He's talking to him. He's praying about glory. He's praying about truth. He's praying about unity. He's praying about the church. There's Jesus praying for you and me. That we love his glory so much that we would... Be a people who are sanctified in the truth, who love one another in amazing ways so the world will know that the Father sent him. So maybe our, our prayer as we leave today is that when the world looks at our life, that they could just get a picture of what really matters to Jesus by the way that we live and the words that we speak. So let's pray for that. Jesus, we thank you for this prayer that you prayed for us. It's really just knowing the unity and love you've had with a father for all eternity. The idea that you would pray something knowing that he wants to answer. And so God, thank you for asking for these things for us, that we would, in, in Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit, love one another well across generational, racial, tribal, national, political lines, God. Lord, we pray that we'd be sanctified by your truth, that this scripture would make us more like Jesus, that we'd be self-sacrificial people who consider others more important than ourselves. God, that we meet the needs of others, that we lay aside our selfish ambitions and walk together and surrender in community and mission so that the world will know that Jesus is sent by the Father. God, we, we want that in us, and Lord, we... We know that you're able, God. I pray you'd make us a people who are willing for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. And you're dismissed.